and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Watches, the His Dark Materials television show, Season 1, Episode 6, The Demon Cages. I am one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit or as a rhythmetric over on Twitter. And I am another one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me from the internet as Lies and Arbor on Twitter, Tumblr, or from my blog, liesandarborgold.com, where I've recently posted a new piece. She's not being sarcastic. She actually recently posted a new piece about his dark <laughs> materials. It was like, see, Chloe, you do update this. I did. I talked further about Tony Makarios and his presence that was missing in season one, episode five of his dark materials. I did this while I was drinking, apparently, and I was so inspired because I watched the episode and I had to drink wine afterwards because I was sad, and uh, I guess I pumped this puppy out. So we talk a little bit further about William Blake, we talk about Lowe's excellent essay that we can't stop name dropping, and we talk about Billy Costa's transition into Tony Makarios' role and... The de-escalation of emotion that came or did not come with it. Mm -hmm. So the emphasis of the scholar's coin, for example. Yeah. Lots lots missing that I know we didn't get to go fully into on our cast. So I went a little further, apparently. Check it out. We'll link it below in the description. I did really, moreover, just want to brag that, yes, I finally <laughs> fucking published something on my blog. The spell's over, baby. That dry spell's over. It is... Nice and damp. Um, nope, you know what? So that was my big <laughs> moment to shine today, Eliana. What have you done today? Nothing. I've done nothing. I. You know what? But you know what I did today? I came up with an What's informal good? title for this episode. It's called Bullvangers and Mash. Because uh, one of the terms, one of the fun terms that the English have for their breakfast is bangers and mash. So that's what I have for everyone today. <laughs> Part of me is really disappointed in you and wants to fire you like I do when you tell a bad pun. But I say that I also think the other part of me really loves bangers and mash. Yep. So thank you for this title. Very mixed feelings. Also, another thing that I came up with was to remind everyone that, as you may know if you've been following our show coverage... This is a mostly all spoilers podcast. We are covering information from, at the very least, all three of the His Dark Materials novels, and um, every now and then a sprinkling of the Book of Dust. Just a, a sprinkling of a dust. slight dusting, slight winter. Am I the dust fairy? You might be. <laughs> you very much. Uh, you're little dust bunny. Oh, that's <laughs> Oh. We got this email from our good friend Graham. Yeah, Graham said, Pullman has a very little joke in the series. Lyra's Oxford has Oxford University. Our Oxford also has Oxford Brooks University. You can read all about it on the internet with a link that he gave us. <laughs> I didn't know what else to say. It is separate from Oxford University. I would not be surprised if Pullman, who's attached to the city, teases us with references across worlds which Lyra could not possibly know. People who cannot get into Oxford, but would like to, can find it easier to get into Brooks and later claim, with truth, they have a degree from Oxford, a subterfuge not dissimilar to Lyra's 
False name, Lizzie Brooks. So I thought that this was a really great Easter egg that I personally did not know as an American. Yes, a yank. <laughs> yeah, from being across the pond. Stop. <laughs> I've been watching a lot of Glow Up, the uh, mm. UK makeup competition on Netflix. Oh, it, it's it. kind of trash, but also... Like, they had Nikki Tutorials, the makeup artist from YouTube, hmm. on, on one oh, of the episodes yeah. as, like, the challenge thing. Yeah, she was the, the challenge on one of the episodes. Huh. But I've just been watching. I work with uh, a couple of people from across the pond, as Eliana would, would call it. And every time I sit there watching this show and there's a new phrase I learn, I'm like, ooh, I got to say that. I got to tell that one to my friend. <sighs> yeah, I mean, same, same. Um, and I'm not learning much from the show. There's not yeah. a lot of good slang in the show. Yeah, that's true. Um, we'll come back to it in a bit. I recently finished watching season two of Fleabag. And you know what I realized today? Jack Thorne, executive producer of His Dark Materials, was also a writer on Skins. And I loved seasons one and two of Skins. Three and four were okay. I never actually ended up watching five and six, though. Yeah, I never watched it, and I really need to. Really need to. Yeah, it, it was... Now you have two Skins crossovers. You're right. It's a little different this time around, but you're right. I mean... Yeah. In a way. Yeah. I uh, tweeted at Philip Pullman today. Oh, again. Did he ever respond to yes. Mortal Kombat? No. So today I tweeted at him about the most important thing, and I'm going to bring it up up top. So is John Fa and Maggie Costa, is it canon or not? Because I can't go on living with these weird, intimate moments. And also... Uh, are were they trying to portray it through the color of Billy Costa's skin? Like, is this really what we're supposed to understand from this? Like, and is it canon? Is Pullman saying John Fa and Maggie were together in the books? I'm just, he's executive in writing on this. So you're asking if they were Fa King, because John Fa. <laughs> I'm actually about to get fired, and we haven't even gotten into the meat of the episode. <sighs> Well, this has been our last episode. <laughs> this has been our last episode. I can't believe you just said that to me. <laughs> you should tweet it on our account. I should. I should. Uh, speaking of tweeting on our accounts and official accounts, I also tweeted. So the U.S. version of the His Dark Materials official account, HBO One, um, at Demons and Dust, quote tweeted someone who shared the gif of Roger yelling, she's special. And then they said... In the quote tweet about Roger, he's special, and I'm just hurt. Why would they do this to me? Dude, it's gonna suck. Like, really badly, especially after this episode. Why would they do that? They're cruel. All the Roger scenes are gems in this episode. That speech was incredible yeah. this episode. He did a great job. Uh, the the younger actors, I think, are really showing it out. Yeah, I think, yeah, he's a phenomenal actor. The yeah. other kids were great, too to be honest. Yeah, the episode was definitely shot well. I mean, there's yeah. some negatives I think Eliana feels about it. There's some negatives I feel about it. But there's a lot of positives I personally feel. I think it was a beautiful episode. I yeah. don't uh, I don't discredit your opinions on a few things, which we will talk about, and we will fight. It will be Mortal Kombat. Oh my god. You know? <laughs> they're, go they're gonna, apparently, according to trailers, they're gonna be naked wrestling. That's what I said. Yeah, I know, but I was like, maybe they'll like put armor on them later nope. or something. No, it's they're gonna naked. be lewd. Yeah, they are going to be nude. Nude wow. and lude. It's weirdly Naked weird. Naked bears. I'm, 
guessing, okay, we just talked about off the air how we need to stop being so deep because apparently it's not. The books aren't that deep. They're a little deep, but not super, you know? No one's ever, no writer's ever like meaning to be that deep. They're like writing a story and then people drop. So Jack Thorne isn't either, is what I'm learning. So I was like all, no armor, like, no, their souls are off. It's just bears. Bearing. They're bear bears. Oh, two bear bears. So last time on His Dark Materials. Uh, Kaisa's nerd burb voiceover talking of the prophecy. So this is that recap, you know, that thing that happens at the beginning of the episodes. Yes. And then you have Seraphina reuniting and then immediately parting with Fardricorum. We have Will. Will! That's all I need to say. Will! <laughs> Boreal creeps on Elaine. Lyra goes to the fishing village with Yorick, and she also finds Billy Costa. John Perry. Oh my god. Discussions. Discussions. He is spoken about <laughs> in the first season of this show. Can't believe it, everyone. Um, Billy Costa dies. If you'll all remember. They figure out what the gobblers seek to do. If you can remove someone's soul, you can do anything. They have that whole little exchange of, we have to fight, we have to kill. And then we reach Bullvanger. And that's where we are now. Welcome to Bullvanger. And Nash. And Nash. Get out. (laughs) It's too soon. You should have just sat there and ate your bangers and I should have. So we open the episode with Lyra being paraded through the snowy outdoor hallways of Bullvanger over to the cafeteria. She makes meaningful eye contact with Roger, but also makes meaningful eye contact with everyone else in the room because they are all staring at her intently as she enters, as though this is an awkward teen movie and she doesn't know where to sit in the cafeteria. And maybe it's because she walks to sit alone at the table. I don't know. Though Pan ends up secretly talking to Celia and pretending... Not to actually see each other. Someone nicely decides to sit at Lyra's loser table. It's Bridget McGinn. Uh, but not for long. She then gets called up to the principal's office. It's not good. Yeah. Yikes. Couple feelings about this scene. I thought it was a really strong open scene. Roger has a haircut. Mm-hmm. And as we learn later, haircuts aren't really good symbols in this episode. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm guessing it was to examine his head dust and not because he was getting scruffy we'll talk about it later when we get to the left behind children the painting is there from the books well kind of it's different looking but it was there in the books there's a passage she followed sister clara to the canteen where a dozen round white tables were covered in crumbs into the sticky rings where drinks had been carelessly put down dirty plates and cutlery were stacked on a steel trolley There were no windows, so to give an illusion of light and space, one wall was covered in a huge photogram showing a tropical beach with bright blue sky and white sand and coconut palms. It's a nod. I'll take a nod. I will take a nod any day. I like that they're very intent on including this detail in every sort of live action version of this. They had it in the movie, too. Oh, yeah, they did, didn't they? Yeah, they they were like, look, the thing. (laughs) And Is that what I said? (laughs) <laughs> the thing and yeah i mean every time I, th- I think it's an interesting nod this like sort of ironic little piece of paradise in hell yeah. <laughs> especially with what is said to lyra later by sister clara that you're in the best place you can be yeah 
She's still, I just like the way she enunciates things still. Yeah. I love the attention to demon detail with names so far. Like, they're naming them. Salcilia is named in the show. Yeah. That's awesome. It's a small thing to be grateful for, but I feel like we should always be grateful for small things. Mm-hmm. That's uh, true. And Lyra seeing Roger alive again. Oh, It was beautiful. The way heart. that like she just has her, th- that slow, slow motion in her mouth slightly open. Yeah. Great. Then we have Bridget, whose name I misspelled here. Bridget is escorted down a haunting metal hallway by Sister Clara and the doctor, whose fox demon looks at Bridget's currently rabbit demon quite hungrily, in my opinion. The door closes behind the doctor and Bridget and Sister Clara stands creepily in the hallway with a dead smile. Then as the lights go out, her smile fades. The doctor then exits the room and literally snaps, it's pretty fucking rude, at Clara, who follows her. Ugh. Yeah, Dr. Cooper's demon is a fox. That is just the whole, like, sly, responsive, stealthy thing. Not to go all animal quarter on you guys, but it was definitely preying on her little rabbit demon. Just shivers. There was a fox demon, though, amongst the Egyptians. I saw up there on the cliff, so. Hashtag not all foxes. Not all, not all, but this one definitely. Oh, yeah. For sure. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I am bummed that Bridget didn't really do her book role, but yeah. at least she was name dropped. At least they gave it the name. They gave her role. I she mean, was cute. Very adorable. Better than what her counterpart got, right? Bridget had more of a role than Tony Macarios. Bridget had representation. Yeah. Tony Macarios did not. But uh, Bridget in the books, if you have not read the books and you're listening to us, I hope you're enjoying all the spoilers. <laughs> you know, I think that's a good way to live your life. You're kind of chaotic evil, and I like that. Uh, but Bridget in the books is, if you don't remember, Tony Macarios's slash Billy Costa, Zlyra. She hid with Tony when they were trying to take him to sever him. And then she told everyone what happened to him when she could and spread the word of what they're really doing to children until she's taken in the first book here. Uh, the doctor comes in and asks for Bridget McGinn. And he tells her to finish her drink and come with Sister Clara. And tells everyone else to go along to their classes. And they all pack up their food and leave. And the line is, no one looked at Bridget McGinn except Lyra. And she saw the blonde girl's face vivid with fear. It does its job as a scene of explaining these kids are watching their friends get picked off one by one with no answer as to what happens. Of course, I'm not mad about that. In fact, I liked the scene. It was Mm -hmm. spooky and creepy. It flowed really well from the creepiness of Clara in that darkness. It did more than just cold introduce the episode without overdoing it. All of this together, Clara blankly staring while being snapped at. It's just chilling. Yeah. And I think it was quite nice that they kept the horrors of what's happening in that room away for now yeah uh, and focus it on clara i think that was a really good choice yeah i think that was awesome having that moment right there and just the door uh there was another moment in this episode where the door shut that made me just go (laughs) there are a couple of um good door scenes um including of course the one but we'll get to that later yeah Um, also I, i realized that as the light flickers that's another sort of hint as to something we're told about later about the magnetic fields surrounding the interstitial machine and then Lyra picking up on that. So it's just a, it's kind of like all these little nuggets of very condensed world building. Yeah, I think they're doing a great job with it. I'll give them yeah, that. Yeah, they did good visual storytelling for this episode, at least. 
Then we get the intro every time. So good. Such a banger. A bull banger. Yes. Um, Chloe and I just sing this song. Yeah, we were singing it together. I do it at home. Uh, As I mentioned last week, I dance with a spatula to it. Sometimes you got to conduct with a spatula. Have you done that yet? No, I haven't done that. I just mostly sing and belt it. I (laughs) highly recommend it. Highly recommend. So... It's school picture day, Eliana. It is school picture day. Liar's only been here a minute, and they've already decided she's going to be in the yearbook. Oh my god. In some sort of hybrid doctor checkup school photo session, Lyra turns the tables on the photographers and asks them questions about being dusty. But when things get too hot, she plays it cool and she's like, oh, no, 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 I wash, so I'm not dusty. She really was practicing where to push and where to pull here. Yeah. Uh, where to stop and where the line was and how not to cross it. And I thought that was interesting. I like that they're showing that part of her character. She's a very smart young woman. She's very adaptable. She's learning. Yeah, I kind of wondered if that was like a slight double entendre in the... When she was blowing up the machine, she was telling Pan, she's like, I'm going to keep pushing one of the buttons till something happens. And like, that's what she does, you know? She just keeps pushing buttons, like, uh, figuratively when she lies, until she gets some sort of indication or answer. Yeah. Uh, They've done a really good job of showing, though, Lyra's increasing ability to lie. And I also like this line. It it might be in the books, too. I think she asks, like, can you see dust in these pictures? And it becomes a callback to our first time of seeing or hearing dust and those boomerangs taken by Lord Asriel. Mm -hmm. And by boomerangs, I mean the photograms. But, you know, it's more fun when I use Instagram terms, you know? Oh my god. <laughs> I, like two seconds from blocking you on Instagram. All the time. Oh no. Exactly. That one was actually way more sad to me than being fired. I was like, how could she? <laughs> the Graham. No, I'll just fire you. Don't worry. The Graham. The Graham. <gasps> I'm taking your phone away from you. I see what you mean there with that callback to Asriel. And I also like, I, I like that a lot, that idea of the photogram. Like, and I wonder if. I don't know, just being surrounded by that metal, it reminds me of, like, silver nitrate emulsion. Mm. Like, it makes me think of that now. Like, just, just there's so many interesting back and forths of learning what we've learned already in the first couple episodes in that exposition drop and what it has to do with now, like that ambaric field. That was a great catch. Something that I find weird is in the books, she plays it a lot simpler. You know, she thinks she has to act dumb and Pan tells her, Lyra, act dumb. She's kind of getting too smart for her britches here. In a lot of these scenes. I get it. It's more fun. Yeah. But she does ask some of these questions, like and pretends to ask them like kinda of dumbly as though she'd like just heard it or whatever. Yeah, and we'll talk about it a bit, yeah. but it's not wrong to be fair, she is a little precocious. I think also <laughs> with I don't know, these adults I think are a little different. They're obviously much less invested in the lives of the children. I don't think they would be able to notice if a child were dumb or not. They only seemed to notice right their age, it yeah, seems. Yeah, that's not what they were interested yeah. in. Then the fire alarm goes off, and Lyra's ushered out by Sister Clara. There's this line one of the kids in passing says, it happens whenever someone's taken about the fire alarm. Mm. That's interesting. Does that lead to anything, or is it just a weird one-off line? And we have to stop doing this to ourselves, because then we think that it's going to be something, and it isn't. It was, I think, supposed to be something. Maybe, Maybe it will pan out with uh, Mrs. Coulter berating them, if she does, if that still like is a thing in the next episode, if she's still here. But in the books, right, she 
berates them because the fire alarm is on the same circuit as the rest of right. the security and that uh that isn't exactly what happens oh. allegedly it was fixed but that is how they blame uh the escape of the, the children cages. in the demon cages so that's what i couldn't remember and what i was missing and we'll talk about that later because i i have some disappointing feelings on that mm-hmm. but uh, that might be my disappointment. I know you have a couple things that you're like, ah, underwhelmed, but mine was definitely demon cages, and that's something I was confused about. Like, okay, okay. Yeah, but yeah, I, I think that's what it's referring to, and I I don't know if it's just like an Easter egg or a callback. I think it must be an Easter egg. There we go. I, I just was like, that line really stuck with me, and I couldn't figure it out, so thank you. Holy crap, you're an angel. <laughs> So there's also a lot of good showing, though, right? You were talking about the visual storytelling in this episode. They depict the other nurses in Bolvangar, and we don't see them interact much, but just the way that they're acting, it's very similar to Sister Clara. They're not telling when we see that one nurse uh, who is behind the door as Sister Clara ushers uh, Lyra. The door opens, and that woman's right behind the door, and she doesn't even fucking blink when the door, like, opens in her face. I would be like, oh, okay, word, this is very rude. I was right here, chill out, everyone. But the fact that it doesn't phase her at all shows us that lack of um, stimulus. And, you know, we, again, keep referring back to Lojotko Mirror and their analyses, but... Also, coming back to one of your analyses from our reread of Northern Lights slash The Golden Compass. My read, your reread. You were already rereading it by this time, right? Listen. <laughs> uh, you were talking about uh, women disproportionately being subject to lobotomies in history. And I do think it's mm-hmm. noteworthy that we're seeing that a lot of these nurses are women, and therefore they're also adults who have been subject to severing. And I think that's not really because, like, I mean, you could speculate that one of the doctors, Dr. Rendell, has been severed because we never see his demon, but I think that's just an oversight. Because he doesn't show any of those same signs that we see uh, from those who have lost their souls, that lack of curiosity we see in these nurses, or even the other doctors. There are doctors, it seems, in the books who have been severed, and though we also see other adults whose souls are taken by specters, so that he doesn't react that way and seems to feel guilt. It's not that we just don't see his demon just because they didn't feel like depicting it. But anyway, I think there's something to be said of that connection between what you're saying about lobotomies and that very gendered aspect of who gets severed. Yeah. In Dr. Rundle's privilege that we learn of here, you know, as a doctor and as a male and it's like like you said it's definitely an oversight that we don't see his demon it's just the usual it's hiding in his pocket maybe he has an insect and it just doesn't crawl over his face yeah he doesn't it doesn't crawl over his face like the other dude from the magisterium yeah well the other dude needed to be scary this guy needed to be a bitch yeah this guy needed to be mildly like oh he almost feels for them and then being like wow you can like really feel for the kids and like still fucking suck yeah lyra and roger do some investigating during roll call lyra starts a snowball fight roger reluctantly joins in on to distract the staff since help is on its way they try to find an exit to escape but come across something much worse 
the demon cages. They find the demons that were once whole with their humans. Billy Costa's cage is, of course, empty, as we know. Roger feels lightly betrayed that Lyra did not tell him Billy died. Roger asks where the children are, if the demons are alive. I liked the exchange here. Uh, Lyra's out there talking about how she doesn't care about sticking out, and he's like, Lyra, you need to chill out so we don't get caught. And she starts to throw snowballs, and he's like, you never did listen. Oh, Roger. Roger. Also, reminds me of Will and Lyra. With their approaches, especially in the subtle knife, Will gets very mad at Lyra because she doesn't assimilate, you know, and uh, try to be unnoticeable. It's Lyra's mm-hmm. always going out out of her way to use the outlandish attempt instead. So I thought this is interesting, and it kind of feels like something they're trying with Lyra, especially in this episode with some of these exchanges. Yeah, I think that calling it back to Will and Lyra is a good point because she's going to keep doing it the way she keeps doing it until... If- until the time that it fails, and then she's like, okay, you're right, this is not the best tact for like everything. Like when she took out her alethiometer in a museum? Yeah, and then someone took it, and she's like, okay, well, you were right. I'm sorry, I fucked up. <laughs> Everyone was right. I can't always do whatever the hell I want. It's true. My poor daughter. Yeah, I mean, that's part of growing up. That literally is part of growing up. Also, Billy was seven. Damn. Also, I did like the snowball fight scene. I thought that that was executed quite well. Um, It felt... Mm-hmm. It felt like a moment of youthfulness, which is kind of yeah. what it was supposed to be, you know, like the kids doing the thing, right? This sort of light in the dark. Uh, and Innocent, saving all. Yeah. And then just to bring it back down to dark, Bridget's demon hitting its head against the wall of the cage. Very uh, Ava Unit Zero. Oh my god. Iconic scene though, right? Very iconic, but Jesus Christ. Just to be a weeb for a moment. These are my roots. You just can't change who you are. My demon is some... I don't know. Your demon is fucking Naruto. (laughs) Why would you do that? Why would you say that? My demon is like Pen Pen. Leave it in the cast, you coward. (gasps) So they find the children. The children are in another room, heads shaved, demonless, counting blankly like Billy was when he was found. Lyra and Roger slip out, trying to sneak back into line. Lyra tells Roger to spread the word to the other kids and leave when the alarm sounds. A nurse walks suspiciously behind them. Chloe, the counting. It's the thing. I know! I called it! You did! I, uh, I don't know how I feel about the connection with it in regards to Elaine now, but we'll talk about that soon. Controversial opinion, I guess. A lot of people were mad about this addition with the children. And I've seen people be like, that's ruining the sanctity of the book. That wasn't in the book or some shit. What? This is like, it makes sense that the children are there, in my opinion. I think this might be a good addition because that many kids in the demon cages like couldn't have disappeared and still been alive and the demons still been alive. I think that's kind of something that makes sense of having them somewhere further tested on. Pullman might not say it, but... To me, it kind of makes sense in the canon. I-, I think it makes sense. I'm not mad. Yeah, I I think it makes sense. And Tony Macario's not being there and some of the other children not being there. It's not like that they just set them free because they're like, we don't need this anymore. It yeah. was just that they escaped. They, they weren't tending to them well. And some of those kids just happened to escape and wander off. Right. Yeah. Like they were like, ideally, yeah, the test subjects are still here because that's yeah. how they think of them. I mean, they really didn't want these kids to go wander in the woods. Let's be real. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, that's that's all. Like that to me was kind of uh, seeing some of that discourse maybe go. Hmm. Yeah. Really. That's it? That's what you're mad about? I don't know. Then we have Dr. Cooper and Dr. Rendell, who we know now. It's in the closed captions, uh, which I figured out. Uh, and also because I looked I it up. I remember it? We don't know. I also looked it up. I didn't re- know Dr. Cooper's name. So between the two of us, we, we got this. Yeah, we got two horrible people that history should forget. They talk about morality and Mrs. Coulter. Hey, that's what we do. Yeah, that is what we do. <laughs> also have having a drink. drink yeah they drink that's what we, that's do. What we do they discuss the work we they're do doing that. at bullvanger we don't, do we don't do that no we're we're not awful and uh they discuss how she is on her way i love when mrs coulter is referred to as she it's great like in general i think it's just so good that you know who she, she. is iconic she. who is she who is she <laughs> the fucking little pigeon that'd be hilarious <gasps> if her demon was that pigeon Think about it. Cooper thinks that they need to push their work. They're on the edge of discovery, in her opinion. But Dr. Rendell feels like they're probably not doing the right thing. Dr. Cooper is like, we're doing what's necessary to free generations from sin. We must succeed. And they have an exchange where he says, where she says, this is just pain we're causing. But me. um, Yes, that's the point. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> a- like that's that's terrible and bad. Like, how can that not... The idea that, oh, it's just pain. Like, what? I feel like maybe maybe they are severed from their demons, even though they have them. They might have elected to it, like Coulter probably did, or Coulter was experimented on. Who knows? But Dr. Rendell says, how many more children have to die before we get it right? And she just responds that they're doing what's necessary. Yikes. yikes. Big Yikes. I will say it is interesting, despite the cross motifs that we get and imagery of the magisterium, even throughout the books, we don't hear very much about Jesus or the crucifixion and uh, its significance within Christianity. In the books, actually, we never, as far as I know, we would never hear the term Christ. We only hear Jesus, and it happens like twice through Miriam alone, who comes from our world, not through the Magisterium or as people from Lyra's world. In our episodes for A Song of Ice and Fire, which we do a read-through of, as many of you may or may not know, probably many of you know, we talk a lot about the subtleties of sacrifice throughout the series and the difference between being the willing person, right? Being the one to choose for yourself to sacrifice yourself or whether or not you are removing the agency of another by placing them in the position of being the sacrifice and how that isn't necessarily the same as a true sacrifice it may cause you pain but it's ultimately you are not the one giving up as big of uh, a cost right and that's not their sacrifice exactly but here in saying that the children are acting as just necessary pain, that they are dying so that many will be free from sin, generations of sin afterwards will be, it's a very much a perversion of the core of Christianity and the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross, right, within the crucifixion. Because the idea is that the divine innocence willingly chose to die Though he didn't have to himself and suffer so that others could be absolved from sin because of that innocence. But here we have children who, by being children and not being covered in dust, are 
in that role of innocence and they're being led to slaughter and they don't choose it. Yeah, and I love that you related this kind of to Mary Malone in the books and brought her up because I also thought about Mary Malone during this exchange, but I did for a different reason. It's similar to the last conversation she has with Oliver in The Subtle Knife, her subordinate. And I think that's going to be a very neat parallel tomorrow when they finish the entire book in one hour, all three books in one hour. Just kidding. Uh, But it it does show the difference between these adults in the story. Mary Malone is an adult who stood up for what she believed in, in a positive belief, and wanted the best for Lyra while letting her have free will, free will to make her own choices, mistakes, whatever she is to make. In the face of a hard no, Mary Malone said no, while Dr. Rendell said yes, right? There's this passage where... Boreal has come to Mary Malone and Oliver and said, hey, you're about to lose all your research, but if you turn in Lyra and you turn in her friend, the 12-year-old boy she's hanging out with, turn them in and we'll fund your research and you just have to do some stuff for us. And Oliver says basically that he's going to work with Boreal if Mary will not. He was on the verge of quitting literally the day right there before or the day of when Boreal came to them. But he says, yes, I will work with him if you do not. And he tells her, you don't understand, Mary. And she goes, yes, I do. It's very simple. You promise to do as he says. You get the funding. I leave. You take over as director. It's not hard to understand. You'd have a bigger budget. Lots of nice new machines. Half a dozen more PhDs under you. Good idea. You do it, Oliver. You go ahead. But that's it for me. I'm off. It stinks. And that's the difference between these doctors we're seeing right now, right? Like, Mary Malone had the audacity to do what she believed in. And you see Dr. Rendell in this scene just absolutely be a coward-ass chicken shit through the whole rest of the episode. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think this is very much in line with Pullman's sort of philosophy that he's putting in these books, right? Because science, or experimental theology, depending on where you are, right? And what Dr. Mary Malone is pursuing is the pursuit of knowledge, is the pursuit of learning. And considering that this is, in a way, a retelling of the fall in the Garden of Eden, biting from the Tree of Knowledge, of course... Pullman's all about that, but what he's saying is that this suffering isn't in pursuit of knowledge, right? It's in pursuit of ignorance and control and power over others. That's unworthy. Especially because you hear the sound of muffled tears coming from the girls' dormitories. Yeah, it's a really sad scene. It's small, it's a little artsy sad shot pans out, but it's just sad because... That's what that cost is. Yeah. Children. It isn't a well-done transition, though, of Lyra sort of feeling sleepless over to Will, who's also staying up, unable to sleep, because he's watching interviews of his father. John Perry talks about some things that he's taking on his expedition, and one is Will's toy car. The reporter asks if Will understands what his dad is doing. He's like a wee bab. And John says, I don't know. He probably understands it more than my wife does. He's joking. Because Will's, again, a wee bab. 
And then Will checks in on his mom and tucks her in under the blanket because she's asleep and he's a good boy. Yeah, I cried. It got me teary-eyed. I don't know about you, but this one got me. Six for six, baby. Every time. Six for motherfucking six. I think I, like, was just so taken out of the moment, not through any fault of anyone in this scene. Again, as I said at the top of this episode, I just finished season two of Fleabag, and the guy playing John Perry is the hot priest. Like, all I could think of was, like, oh my god, it's the hot priest from Fleabag. Bitch, he's now John he's the Perry. hot shaman. Yeah. Now he's out there. Joe Parry. Now he's the hot daddy, you know what I mean? Yeah. Good for him. I was just like, whoa, I'm very confused. I, like, just had, <laughs> I had a complete series whiplash. They're very different series. You know, you know that feeling? All the time. I mean, we're feeling already kind of taken out of place uh, as far as, you know, what, we got Farter Corum, who's oh, yeah, Lord Commander. Yeah, we got Lord Commander. You got John Fa, who is Salador's son. I mean, it's already kind of one yeah. of those. So why not another crossover? Yeah. They only have like 15 actors there anyways, and they've all been Harry Potter. I, I guess I just had some more space between those. For this, it was like no, less yeah. than 24 hours. I was like, well, <laughs> what's happening? <laughs> I really have to watch Fleabag. I'm hearing that's the thing to watch. I like it. Some people don't. Else. So something to bring up, and this is some like tinfoily speculation. So are you ready? Uh-huh. Are you ready for all this? <sighs> if the connection between Elaine counting and the children counting, the ones that were severed from their demon, is not just an accidental parallel or just a, a cinematic parallel, you know, it makes me wonder if Elaine was possibly forced to sever from her demon, uh, whether on her own or by someone else. As we know, Will finds he has a demon he just has to learn how to look at it properly and obviously ends up that way after the world of the dead john perry found himself a demon and while elaine likely hasn't traveled to another world what if she has her demon too i think that the implication is we all have our demons exactly so what if and of course this is kind of like look at kerjava Mm -hmm. will's demon what if her demon is Moxie, the murder cat? The murder cat. And I say this because A, her demon did protect her and will. Mm-hmm. B, Moxie has been known to disappear and come back and hang out, then be nowhere and then come back. Um, if she can possibly see worlds out of the corner of her eye, per our speculation last episode, I feel like this is kind of a, a fair question, because it means she could probably see her demon, like you were saying in that passage with the Mary Malone and Serafina Pakala stuff. Uh, maybe Elaine could see her demon. And it does bring up other implications with this. It's obviously, this is all just show speculation for fun, but for fun. It seems characters that are forcibly severed from their demons by other people, so an act of trauma or violence not consensual, that seems to put them into this traumatized, paralytic shock state that we see the counting children in. Characters that are severed from their demons when they make the choice to do so, no spoilers or specific needed, they seem to be intact for the most part emotionally. So I don't know if I like those implications, especially with her illness her, whether it's mental illness uh, or impairment, I know it's not really identified, so it's fine, whatever. But interesting speculation and interesting food for thought, I think. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting. I don't know that that's true of all 
characters who choose to have their demons severed. Like, we have that one priest, the one father, um, I want to say it's Pavel, I don't remember exactly, who was going to sever Mrs. Coulter from her demon, but she escapes, yes. and then he does it to himself, and he ends up the same as uh, many of those who have forcibly had their demons severed, so I I think it's hit or miss. Like you said, I'm not sure I like the implications because I don't really, uh, I think, respond well to the idea that all who have mental illness or something like Agreed. are are not connected to their souls. Yeah, I think that's how I felt about so. it. I was like, that that may, and not even that. It also is the idea of like, oh, so is the fact that she was severed. That's why she's this way. Was more what I was saying. Like, is that what they're trying to say? Even. Um, I think that's weird. Like, that parallel's there for a reason, yeah. and someday I'll figure it out. I mean, Moxie's there in the books, and it's just like, I don't know, cats like Will, because Philip Pullman is a cat person and apparently thinks poorly yes. of dogs. So anyone that the cats defend and are into... Wait, hold on, hold on. What do you think Philip Pullman, you know, just because it's coming up next week, what is Philip Pullman's opinion on the musical Cats? These are questions that I have that are important to me. You should tweet it at him should, so he you're doesn't right. respond. You're right. I should ask. I should ask that. That finally. I can't wait for you not to get a response to that. Uh, um, I, I'll ask. So also, one of the references that John Perry makes in this video regarding like the records that he's keeping and writing, he says it's kind of like Shackleton. And so... This is a reference to explorer Ernest Shackleton, who lived at the turn of like the 20th century between 1874 and 1922. British explorer famous for exploring the Antarctic during a period known as the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. And I kind of wonder if this is a thing that like has a lot more cultural weight in the UK when it comes up in a show, right? Especially when from the BBC, because in 2002, Shackleton was voted 11th in a BBC poll of the 100 Greatest Britons. Huh. Famous Antarctic explorer, went on quite a few expeditions, ended up actually dying on one of them. Uh, died on a voyage where his boat just like wasn't good enough, but he's like, you know what, we're going to do it anyway. And then he was like, nope, the boat wasn't yes, good I'm enough. Dying. <laughs> died on south georgia which is a sub-antarctic island not related to georgia from my understanding anyways so i wonder if this is just a thing like but anyways so um i thought that was just like a cool reference because you know that's pretty much him yeah i don't know if it's like only him it seems like there were a lot of explorers like this but you know he's the one people are into explorers and john perry's like yeah I'm really into that guy. I want to be like that guy. So. Outside of Elaine's house, they are watched by Thomas and the unnamed Flacky. Thomas is unhappy that the unnamed thug has not gone inside. He says Elaine knows they're watching and that it's enough for now and they'll find an opportunity soon enough. For now, he's unnamed Flacky. Uh, but we're going to see the Moxie murder cat scene. That's what this meant. Yes. That means they are going in and that Moxie is going to trip a bitch up. Oh my god, Is Th <gasps> Thomas is going to die. Thomas is the blonde guy. Wow. I kind of like Thomas. He's a weirdo. I did too. He grew Maybe on me. Maybe they'll kill the other guy. 
Yeah. He's not really like a good weirdo. He's kind of a bad weirdo. He's like getting off on psychologically torturing his family. Yeah, but he's interesting. Wow. Yeah, but I mean, he's just like more interesting than like, I don't know, some of the other bad guys that we've seen, you know? Yeah, this unnamed flacky is boring in the car. Yeah, we're definitely going to see that. And I guess that makes sense, right? So they do all the Will stuff. Some of that probably happens. Like all that murder cat. And then that means like maybe the last scene or something is Lyra entering the world and Will entering Sidagaze at the same time, but in different places. And like, bam, that's it. End of season one. I could see that. I could see it. And even now, they're paralleling each other, right? Because, like, both Will and Lyra are under surveillance at this moment, being watched. Yeah. Yikes. Big yikes. Speaking of big yikes, a Zeppelin lands at Bullvanger, and it is no Bullvanger and Mash, my friends. Oh my god. It is Mrs. <laughs> Coulter. It's identifiable, even from the window in the dorm, the girls point and say that they can see the monkey, and it's her and immediately the leader takes charge to ensure she takes a boy for her experiments this time not one of the girls and the leader's not lyra the leader isn't lyra yeah it's andy in the books but uh, it's strange i can't remember what they said in the show but either way uh she's the leader she's the ringleader this girl was all barking orders saying we're not letting her take a girl this time because they just had a girl go so that sucks she was a good actress she did well with a very emotional in the face yeah the very small amounts that she was given so mm-hmm. and then miss Coulter does arrive right they discuss the effects of the new equipment on the children and they're all like the mortality rate's lower now we did it and the responsiveness they're like now we can sever them when they're conscious and they stay conscious i'm like conscious isn't i don't know if that's the word i would use for that but okay and mrs Coulter's like great I want to see it in action. Yeah, I love that they're just like, it's getting better-ish. Yeah. Lyra reveals part of the plan to the girls. She tells the girls in her dorm that there are people on the way to save them. When they don't really believe her or trust her, she tells them Coulter is her mother, and she tells the truth of what happens to the other children. She asks them to hide her. I am a little confused by some of the dialogue in this scene and how like smoothly this goes for Lyra like you're just thrown off because why does everyone believe her when she's like she's my mother it's like oh okay yeah for sure that totally makes sense I, I think as another little kid I'd be like what and then why would that be a sign of like oh we gotta help her as opposed to we should distrust her right because truly I think the question here would be more like wait so you mean you don't have to fucking be here Right? I like like yeah. I do enjoy maybe Annie's line of I trust nobody in this place. It reminds me of Dr. Carney telling Lyra to keep her own counsel, though she doesn't heed it until it's too late when it comes to Azriel. And I'm just mm. like, Annie, why are you trusting why are you trusting Lyra right now here? It reminded me of Azriel saying he doesn't trust anyone ah. in that first episode, and Coulter as well, when she said it. And interestingly enough, in a way, reminds me of the alethiometer telling her that Will was a murderer and her trusting him. Who would want to admit Coulter was their mom is my first question. That takes a lot of bravery. And absolutely, if she was on Coulter's agenda, being her quote-unquote assistant, like she was originally supposed to be, she would have probably infiltrated this exact thing to lure them and trap them, maybe. Right. But 
To me, it's just, it wouldn't make sense for Coulter's daughter to go in the dorm. I see all sides, but I'm saying that maybe the kids trusted in innocence and bravery over this because they would have died either way if that was the case. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I just, um, like, I don't know. It didn't seem important in this moment to me other than, like, maybe reminding the audience of that connection. That might have been what it was meant to be before it happens, like, before she yells mother in a few scenes. Um... I do like that connection of the alethiometer reminding her or telling her that Will is murdered and her trusting him. And I think that's supposed to be the difference, right? Between her goodness, that she still trusts people despite everything that happens to her. And that in and of itself is a resilience and strength. Speaking of strength. Oh my god, Lyra (laughs) hiding under the bed using all of her tiny little limbs, upper body strength. I could not do this. I cannot. Lyra's so small. I, I also don't. I, yeah, I can't. I can't do a pull. Her up core, either, so her co- I am unfit. Literally, her core muscles and upper body strength amazing. I read books, not fitness. <laughs> I mean, God. theoretically, people like listen to audiobooks while doing stuff. Like our good friend Jeff on the Nauticast podcast. Yeah, but here's the thing: is I'm not like people. <laughs> yeah, I don't do. How do you say it? things same that's what i always say i'm like yeah i don't move yeah i don't know i don't know they pass mrs coulter's test as she gaslights and nags her way around the room ever so lightly and maternally the golden monkey is searching around the room as well especially after she points out the blank bed lyra falls to the floor after coulter leaves but coulter comes back to test their composure and says well done as lyra jumps up into the bed frame again why didn't the monkey smell her? I don't know. If she's related to Coulter, wouldn't he just know that she was there? His nostrils are so big. Wouldn't he so just big. smell human? How could they not smell Lyra? They are so big. Well, because she's so clean now, because they washed her. Maybe she smells oh, different. Oh, yeah, she was dusty before. Mm. Um, a non-sequitur, a tangential thought that I had about the scene where she jumps back under the bed, right, when Mrs. Coulter comes back in. I was like, oh, so dramatic when that happened. And I was like waiting for it to happen again. Then I was like, no, it only happens like two or three more times if this is a comedy. And I would be <laughs> laughing my ass off. I'd be like, again, again. So funny. Yeah, absolutely. But it's not. It's totally a drama. And that tension was so good because it demonstrated that power and control. Because when she comes back in, she says, good. She's like, because Got the girls are just standing up straight. Yeah. yeah. I just, it's sick. It's like a game. It's like putting a cup over a spider and then letting it out and then trying to trap it again. What? And like, I'm all for trapping spiders, but put them outside after. Yeah, I'm not trying to risk. My God. I'm not trying to risk losing the spider. I don't know. Yeah, I know well, I don't have that power and control in my life. <laughs> the spider, the spider is stronger than me. The Egyptian faction is outside of Bulvanger. They're not quite there. They're so close, but they're struggling in the snowy wind to build a mini bridge to pull their sledges across a break. So apparently there are people who think that this is like filler or don't think it's really like important. But I do think that it is necessary from a storytelling standpoint, right, to bolster a, what Lyra is saying, and the faith that the Egyptians will be there in time as she preaches it to the other kids, because if this... If this scene weren't there, someone would have the opposite reaction of like, how did the Egyptians get there? You know, they just came yeah. from nowhere from where they were. So I do, 
think that this is a perfectly fine scene. We see Tony Costa, not Macarios, um, stepping up, being in a little danger in his demon flying around. I think it's important to show because it also shows like it's not all roses. They don't just show up in the books and in the movie. You get that feeling like, oh, the Egyptians are here to save the day just in time. You know, somehow they were just perfectly on time. But it also raises that tension like things aren't looking good for the Egyptians. It's snowy. Winter is not easy up here. Things are getting snowier and snowier and they're just trying to get through and go save the children. Time is ticking and that's kind of a thing that I felt they did right here. Yeah. Lyra really like portrayed that time's ticking. She's like, I, it doesn't matter if they aren't here yet. We have to go. We have to get out of here because otherwise you'll die. Yeah. And they are there in time and it's because of this, right? They're trying so hard and tr- and rushing and trudging because they know the importance of getting there. And I think that's kind of goes back to also what you were saying about Lyra trusts them. She trusts that they'll be there. Speaking of that, uh, Lyra convinces the girls that we, we're going to do it. We're going to break out. And then the line is like, we have to be ready. And they're like, ready for what? She's like, to fight. Dramatic. Yeah, they're really into these lines of to fight. Time to choose a side. <laughs> okay. Dr. Cooper calls Lyra's name at dinner. <laughs> yeah. They've decided, congratulations, you kid. You're the model. For Mrs. Coulter's experiment. Lyra follows them down the hall and attempts to run at one point until the doctor grabs Pentelemon, squeezing until he's like unconscious. And then his line is just only doing what's necessary, right? No response back. Yeah. Lyra is then carried into the room and they put them in the demon cages. The guy just like kind of throws Pan's limp body into there. And then Lyra comes conscious and fights the entire way. She's screaming and running out the room. I really like the scene of her running out from the... Like, just making a beeline in whatever way she can. And then as they capture her again, shove her into the cage, she screams that Mrs. Coulter wouldn't want this, but they keep going anyway. And the guy's like, whoa, hold on. Maybe we should listen when she keeps saying she's the daughter of Mrs. Coulter because, like, we never told any of them her name. And then Mrs. Mm-hmm. Coulter does walk in. She's like, what is all this hubbub? I thought you had this under control. And then Lyra's screaming, Mrs. Coulter, Mrs. Coulter, mother. She realizes Lyra stops the experiment in time as the blade's about to drop and then reaches towards her through the glass. And Lyra faintly crumples. Yeah, the machine is worrying as Coulter realizes it's Lyra. And it's very good, like very anxious. The, the way the machine ramps up is a really good detail. The sound in the background. Yeah. Uh, just everything of that tension in that moment. This was a well done scene. I'm not sure though how I feel about Lyra screaming. It was well done, but I don't know how I feel about her screaming like, you don't know who I am to save herself from the intercision machine. Because like, I'm both unsure at this moment, like whether Lyra really, especially in the book, she, I don't think she still quite fully realizes her privilege in this whole thing and if she did like again the other girls should have fucking called her out for it a moment ago because that means like she's safe from this place and severing like what does she have to fear and then that she does use it in this moment kind of feels to me personally like a betrayal of lyra's character yeah i can understand that i do feel devil's advocate that uh i think what they're doing in this episode that i'm noticing is I feel like maybe we missed out on a lot of that Lyra characterization in the very first few episodes. I don't know whether it was 
it was just too much world building and it got lost. But even in the movie in the Golden Compass, the adaptation had at the beginning just Lyra being Lyra, right? You really got to know Lyra in the first few scenes. She's running the, the Egyptian kids all over the neighborhood and just being a mess, being a messy little shit. And I love that about her. But in the show, it's almost like we got this more mature Lyra. Obviously, she has aged up a little bit. And she's just now getting into her swing of lying, right? Like, the first few episodes, we didn't get her with all the shenanigans we're getting from her now. We get, like, at least a strong two shenanigans an episode. Shenanigans. Um, yeah, it's a strong two shenanigans rate. So we didn't really have that in the first few episodes. We had more of a one shenanigan per episode rate going, I think. Yeah. So I'm wondering if they're just trying to ramp up for the next episode because we need it to be believable that Lyra can lie and Lyra can manipulate and Lyra can, you know, really test her prowess next episode, I think. So I'm wondering if that's part of it, if they're just trying to show her like really being sly and sneaky this episode. Yeah, and using all of her tools to become silver yes. tongue. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Mrs. Coulter then tends to Lyra. She gives her some chamomile tea, which Lyra refuses at first and then Mrs. Coulter says, my mother used to make it for me because I was an emotional child. Oh my god. And then she says that... And then she's like, the thing you said in there and asks who told her, who told Lyra that Mrs. Coulter was her mother and that she'll answer any of her questions. She tries to give Lyra more tea and is like, alright, you don't need to refuse to drink it. If I was trying to drug you, I have many other options. Um, Okay. Interesting. 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 Huh. Yeah. She she just like starts off and Lyra still has given her nothing, right? Like Lyra's like, mm-mm, not touching this. Um, and <laughs> Mrs. Coulter finally is like, well, this is why I gave you away. It wasn't because I didn't love you. It's just it wasn't going to be good for you and me. And Azriel had other ideas for you. And I just wasn't equipped. And I never meant you any harm. And finally, Lyra's just like, okay, well, what the fuck is this place? Because you're harming a lot of fucking kids. Seems like you may mean some harm, even if you don't think it's directed at me. Yeah. And true. Because. But Mrs. Coulter's justification for it to Lyra is that dust is awful and grown-ups, being a grown-up sucks because then you have all like the sin and the guilt and the regret is, uh, those are the things that she feels that adulthood is characterized by. And then you're bound to be sinful forever. And then she goes on to say that eventually, Lyra, you know, your demon's a nice pet, but then you're gonna grow to be like, oh, I don't really like this resented and she's like they're trouble and all those feelings they grow they let the dust in and right now the experiment's not 100% safe so a lot of casualties she's like I don't know if I could trust that you could test the equipment she doesn't say that explicitly but uh, she's like maybe trying she to pretty much says it. she's maybe trying to apply it but it's more of just you know what it is it's that she's like she knows it's bad and doesn't want her daughter to go through it yeah and Lyra catches on to that, obviously, because she calls her out and she's like, Roger and Billy, though, like, Roger and Billy, what's going to happen to them? That You could have done this to them. And, or you did to one of them. <laughs> but she says, oh, like, I'll make sure it's okay. And she goes, well, Billy's dead. <laughs> then Mrs. Coulter delivers. And it is the best lie because she just goes, well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> the way she does it. You're like, oh, my God. I died. That and then later... Uh, we'll get to this in a second, but she goes Star Wars. There's some very obvious Lyra in the cave foreshadowing. 
going on here regarding drugging her, mm-hmm. right? I was like, oh, we're just going to do that. It's just as good as when she was like, I like to think about jumping off a cliff sometimes. Uh- <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a shout out to anyone who is reading or has read Secret Commonwealth, Eliana, not you. Um, <laughs> no shout about- to me demon's nature going forward in the future maybe someday eliana will read it and we could have a very smart discussion we don't know we don't know we don't know the line that coulter says in this that is just like chillingly gross is every boundary and experimental theology requires the sacrifice of the few for the many uh this is something that has been what shared between many different groups of just discrimination and prejudices in many different ways across history and many different things that have happened. You do hear this, this ideology in the doctor's conversation about the Egyptian boy who escapes and how she's infuriated by it and how everyone kind of treats the Egyptians as low-class, second-rate, right? I think they're doing an okay way of kind of showing where the Egyptians stand or sit or boat in society, but there's a lot that the show does not depict as well. And if you've checked out our friend Lowe's essay or the episodes we've spoken about it, you'll hear about the horrible treatment of the Sami people. And this episode has done something with that, but it's also done something with the idea of concentration camps in a way that reminded me a lot of what we know of the Holocaust. Other shows like Game of Thrones were really heavy handed in what they've implied from history by using specific quotes and style of speeches on the show with imagery. And it kind of usually feels like a cheap move in production to inspire fear and emotion from your audience. But subtle things like this in the speech culture or yes, subtle, right. Or the shaving of children's hair. I mean, things that are what background moments, right. It's not something that you see happen as far as the children's hair, but you see the effect of it. Uh, It just really rang out during this episode, adding to inspiring the horror of what's happening to these people and their lives. Celia Easton, who was a professor in humanities in Geneseo in New York, now Dean of Planning, once wrote in some notes a couple things that I found really interesting about the Holocaust, specifically hair shaving. Prisoners who entered the camps were told their heads would be shaved to fight lice. In fact, hair was a precious commodity used in the construction of delayed action bonds because it expands and contracts uniformly. Interesting. After the camps were liberated, the Allies found other Nazi uses for the body parts. I won't go into some of the gruesome details there, but uh, it's not, not pretty, as some may know, some may not. When I first started reading these books... And I'll preface this with five years ago, I would not analyze books in the way that Eliana and I do this every week and analyze books. I would not think of books in that way because especially fantasy, I've been a big fantasy reader my whole life, but it's escapism, right? And five to 10 years ago, I was a different adult than I am now. I was a young adult and I'm still a young adult, but I was a different young adult then. I'm still young, but I was a different young adult then. I didn't really, I don't think I had the world weariness or understanding of how the world works of, uh, you know, we don't all get the same education. We get told different things at school. You don't learn the truth about a lot of history at school, right? I know if you live in America, you probably have learned that in your adult life and it's nuts. 
Uh, I didn't understand a lot of this the first time I read these books. I had inklings and etchings of some of the prejudices and different things that were kind of being represented. Our friend Lowe's essay on the Sami people and a lot of this just awful eugenics that has gone on, that opened my eyes to a lot of it. And I did at first, the first pass through reading this, kind of relate the Egyptians to the Roma people. And in the Holocaust, gypsy camps were a huge thing. A section of Auschwitz that housed dark-skinned gypsies, that was considered racially inferior by Nazis. And the Roma people were in family camps for a very long time. They were lucky enough to be in family camps according to the Nazis, because they were, of course, accorded as Catholics. And eventually they actually dismantled that and just assimilated them back into culture. Uh, and by culture, I mean their other camps, Nazi culture. It's it's like really horrifying, but the Egyptian people have obviously been very much so persecuted and ostracized in this society. And I'm glad that we finally get to feel some of the effects of it. Um, I don't really love some of the Makasta stuff I know we're going to talk about later that kind of got me a little edgy again, just because the characterization of some of these people is not up to snuff for me. I feel like we haven't really gotten to a core until now. And what Coulter says about theology reminds me so much of the phrase, our bait mocked fry work makes one free. It's paraphrased from the gospel of St. John in Protestant tradition. uh, And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This appeared at the entrance to Auschwitz and many of the other Nazi concentration camps. The term originated in 1873 novel by German nationalist and philologist Lorenz Diefenbach. It was about a gambler who found virtue through hard work and labor. And then the phrase was adopted and perverted by German and Austrians alike in power, specifically by the Nazi party. It was later used in French, La Travail Reine Libre, by August Forel, who was a psychiatrist, neuroanatomist, and uh, wrote several books, one that translates to The Ants of Switzerland. Yikes. And in 1922, ethnic nationalist organizations used it to promote membership stamps. And in the 30s, Nazis used it to promote programs against unemployment. So contrasting this phrase, one of the camps Buchenwald had a much more honest perversion of this quote. Uh, I say honest I don't mean honest positively, it's just a more accurate one, which the truthful version was, each gets what they deserve. And the fact that Coulter says this and then turns around in the same breath and basically says, well, I'm sorry that this is the only thing I'm good at and my work is going to change the world. Like, I'm sorry if that's not good enough for you. Wildly out of touch. Yeah. Wildly out of touch. Like, the fact that They've torn apart all these families and peoples and life just recklessly and just slaughtered these children, basically, without even blinking an eye. Dr. Cooper, without even blinking an eye, hits the button. Yeah. It's bone chilling. It is. It's just disgusting that power corrupts. That's what it is. And not just power, that that idea of... The perversion and idea of what necessity is. And I think that this is... The, the things that you're talking about are... Th- Reference in this episode and made clear not just through Mrs. Coulter or Dr. Cooper. I think it's made most clear perhaps in Dr. Rendell and the idea that by not taking a stand, by just going along mm-hmm. with what is quote unquote necessary, by just doing what you were told, 
that isn't enough. It's not enough. That complicity is in and of itself. If you are complicit in doing these things and just doing what you're told, if it is part of horrors and violence, it it is violence. Um, we talk about what violence is a, lo a lot in a bunch of the books that we read, and I think that Dr. Rendell's absolutely pointing to all of the um, ways that you're talking about how yeah. a genocide occurs when people don't stand up against it, when people don't call it out. Absolutely. And our bait mocked Fry. I mean, that was, it was written as like a, a phrase in a book to say, oh, this guy should have pulled up his bootstraps and through hard work, he was cured. And that's what Coulter is saying here that, you know, we cure them. This is a cure. And it's not. If people suffer from your cure, how is it a cure? Yeah. And how come only... Some people are uh, subjected. So I, I think this is something that Pullman does want people to think about. Because I think that there can be good that comes from religion. But here, he's talking, he's showing how religion, of course, can be used to pervert and oppress people. And that's something that he's interrogating in these books very much. It's not the first or the last fantasy, even youth fantasy series to allude oh, to yeah. genocide. Uh, I think one thing that Pullman has that we see in other books, maybe lesser done, J.K. Rowling, she had all of these tools right here. I mean, our bait mocked fry is straight up magic is might. That's what that phrase means. It's the same thing. And it's something that she's so close like she was so close to being aware of her story so close and she never dove into some of these things in this depth and that is something i'm really grateful for with this series and even with this show that we get to see some of that especially because the one book that did dive into it was the most hot topic doubt in the movie i'm just saying it was very obvious corporations got involved at some point you know what i mean which which what are you talking about Order and Half-Blood. I don't even remember those movies. <laughs> See, exactly. <laughs> so, Coulter asks Lyra if she'll sleep with her that night. Lyra says yes. And then Coulter starts to manipulate her and is like, What about, ha has the Master of Jordan given you anything that you should give to your mother, dear? You know, that silly old etheometer thing. You don't know how to look at that. Can you just give it to me? You don't need it. And then she tells Lyra, now is the time to choose who you belong to. And then she whispers straight into the camera, I am your mother. And I lost my shit laughing for the second time in this scene. And I don't think I was supposed to be laughing during this scene at any time. So just putting that out there, inappropriate emotions. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and... Daphne Keene does a great job, though, of being like, yes, of course, mother. And she's like, I kept it safe this whole time, and hands her the spy fly tin. She's waiting in anticipation for Mrs. Coulter. She's like, oh, you've really taken good care of it. Kind of weird. You sold her to clothes, huh? And then as the fly comes out, Lyra runs. She fucking nails it. She's like, out of here! Yeah, she's very good at just <laughs> running. Yeah, she and Throughout is. this she episode. She bashes the door locking mechanism in as she leaves and we get this epic shot. I'm talking like this is cinematic gold. Like at, my partner and I sat here just screaming about it where Lyra and Coulter are screaming at each other through the door and they show each side and it's it's art. It's art. It was. It was really good. Well done. Especially as you have like that reversal of their colors. Mrs. Coulter now in red. Lyra in blue holding the power. Yeah. 
in this situation. She's the captor now, as opposed to the captive. Uh, I want you all to know, in the closed captions for this, were just variations <laughs> of panning back and forth saying, Screaming! Screams! Screaming! <laughs> that that's, uh, that's how the scene is described. I do like that we had a lot of this like emotional tension and connection between Mrs. Coulter and Lyra in the scene as opposed to uh, the way that it was played off in the movies, a little bit in the books, where it feels like Mrs. Coulter's only being nice to Lyra for the alethiometer. Here you get a li- little more complexity. It's a lot of things. She wants the alethiometer. She wants Lyra. She wants to keep doing her work. There's so many things that are at play here, and I think this scene does do a good job of balancing that things can be more than one thing. Yeah. Absolutely. I like there's a line where Lyra parrots back some something to Mrs. Coulter and basically says, I'm glad to be found. Kind of reminds me of, it, it, it feels like a perversion of a line from Amazing Grace, like, I was once lost, but now I'm found. And mm. that reminds me of Little Girl Lost by William Blake. Yeah, I was thinking that, that actually, as I said it aloud, I was like, oh, it's like Chloe's thing. <laughs> the handing of the tin in place of the alethiometer, something that happens in the books as well, and they, of course, recreate it in the movie, but I've never actually thought of it in the sort of, like, metaphoric way, the symbolic way, where the alethiometer, of course, right, is a truth teller, it's a symbol reader, and what Lyra does is she withholds the truth from Mrs. Coulter and gives her the tin, feeds her these lies that are patched up, and that's... That is a physical manifestation of what Lyra is doing in this moment as she tries to get away from Mrs. Coulter of their broken down relationship. And then Lyra also in this acting, she takes Mrs. Coulter's hand and she mirrors the scene uh, in Mrs. Coulter's apartment where the monkey is petting Pan by pulling Mrs. Coulter's hand to her cheek because we see now that this, we, we knew it back then, right? That this is what Mrs. Coulter really wanted with Lyra or one of the things she does and she fulfills yeah. that desire of Mrs. Coulter and and sort of acts that all out in order to get that trust. And you almost see that desire come back later when she's watching Lyra from behind the wall at the fighting. Yeah. It, it, it's conveyed all that complexity. Ruth's doing a great job with this acting. I wanted to sort of wax on this idea of you know, the Garden of Eden is ever-present in these books as a sort of backdrop, and I'll come back to that a little more, especially at the end of the season, but the Garden of Eden is, of course, associated with innocence, and it's kind of funny that the supposed mission of Bolvangar is to help preserve innocence, to keep people free of sin, especially these children, right? And it's still called Bolvangar, though, because... It's called The Station by those who work there, but it's called Bovanger by everyone else, which means Fields of Evil. And I think this is kind of a double entendre in quite a few ways, right? You have the idea of a field versus the garden, where a garden can be uh, beautiful. Sometimes it's just done to be what it is, whereas a field is often tilled. It's there for harvest. It's there for mass production. And you have all of these children who are just there not really well cared for, no one really loving them. They're there and being churned out in this sort of factorial sort of way. And then, again, field, right? Because allegedly, they're making great experimental theological, aka scientific breakthroughs here. They're not 
terrible things are happening here, but but maybe a sort of play on the idea of a scientific field, this field of research happening. Anyway, ah. thoughts. <laughs> uh, it does remind me, you know, because they call Bullvanger the fields of hell. It is that, too. Yeah. Well, Lyra bashes the fire alarm in. Screaming! After <laughs> screaming. After, uh, after locking the door mechanism by breaking it, she's like, I'm just going to keep bashing shit. She tells Roger to persuade the cut children to come with them, and she goes off to change into winter clothes and destroy the machinery. She's interrupted by Sister Clara. She turns the situation around, asking her what the name of her demon was before they cut him from her, and she tells Lyra it was Nicholas and how she loved him so. Lyra uses that moment of preoccupation to run. I don't know. Whatever. I didn't love the that interrogation, but at least it... I think this is their way of showing it to the audience. Right. Hey, at least you got more Clara. Yeah. This is it, probably. And she this said or the thing. maybe the next episode. She said the thing. Yeah. Best place. Uh, yep. She did a good job with yes, her scenes. The costumes do some smart stuff here as Lyra changes. Because then she dons her red hat. So we can easily tell her apart and see that she's different and special from all the other kids who only have blue beanies. Everyone's got a beanie though, and beanies are awesome. I hate beanies. I uh, mean, I don't. Uh, other people sure, but <laughs> I'm not a hat person whatsoever. That's funny if you think about it. From when I visited you, anyways, I'm not a hat person. I don't know why we're the exact opposite on like everything when it comes to this shit. But I hate. I love beanies. <sighs> hate wearing beanies. You're so weird. Roger frees the children. Roger comes to the room of children, all shaved and despondent. At first, they won't follow him, but he returns to convince them, and he does a pretty damn good job. He's got these great lines of, Do something and we can make them pay for what they did to you. Do nothing and all your demons will know. Is that hurt of that final moment? Is that really what you want? A. Rude. B. Roger, no. C. I did love the speech, and I love the scene. I like the addition. I'm fine with that. I think he did great. Yeah. This was really good. Yeah. It just sucks that we didn't get the demon cages. Yeah, I agree. I It, it all still feels a little off. Like, I'm not sure if this is how it works, right? The, the speech, because of what we know being severed is supposed yeah. to be like. But, as you said... He did a great Lewis job. Lewis did a fantastic job. All of the, his scenes are gems. He's just very cute and charismatic, and he he looks at the camera and has that little twinkle in his eye. Like, I'm grinning just thinking about it. He's a good he kid. He brings out my inner little aunt of, like, squish cheeks. I know! I'm, I'm grinning right now. Yeah. Um, I, so, in a meta sense, I'm guessing they chose having the children be shown freed, partly because they're kind of, like, Walking Dead-esque, and... Kind of like what will happen in Amber Spyglass mm-hmm. with Ro- Lyra finding Roger and freeing them. That's Aww. the only reason I can see them simplifying it to this. Uh, and demons being, you know, not budgetly, budgetary, smart, and uh, just too much on the screen. So I wonder if maybe that was it. But it is kind of a bummer because this is a big moment, the demons all getting freed. So it's like, fork out some money for some puppets, goddammit. But it doesn't make sense if you have the children. So I get it. We didn't get... Silly little nerdy Kaisa. Yeah. <laughs> just give me this the, funny uh, voice. Snow around. I just clearly have a thing for strange 
ways of speaking. Lyra blows up the machine. She does not use flour, nor does she do anything like what Ma Costa taught her in that one scene. What's the point? We thought we were so fucking clever. <laughs> we were like, oh. What's the fucking point, Eliana? I wrote an essay yeah. about flour mill explosions. What's the point? Man, turns out they were just going to do it like in the books. Who would have thunk? Why would, I, why would we ever have expected something different? I guess the flower foreshadows it. Dust? I mean, it's dust. Yeah, I don't know. They realistically get away, and they survive the explosion. And then a bunch of stuff happens in a row. Yes, you have... The balloon is here! Mrs. Coulter and her monkey climb into the ducts to escape the room, which is actually great. Stay on this a second. (laughs) We don't see her climb up. Like, she looks up. I was laughing. My partner pointed this out to me, and it's an impossible climb. There's no way she got up there. Because she, like, stands there, and she looks up at the vent that her monkey got in. And she's just staring, and, like, my partner just looks at me and is like, watch, they're not going to show how she gets up there. Boom. Break in the shot. Next shot. She's in the fucking vent. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mind it. I believe it. I, I, I it like it believable. because it reminds me of Lyra also crawling through the vents. They're so similar. Which we didn't get. Uh, she she did it in Mrs. Coulter's apartment, but you're right. In the book, she yeah. does it. Lyra does it. I was it. surprised that Coulter... That, that's something... I, I'm not upset about how that scene happened. It is what it is. That's fine. But it is kind of one of those things I liked better that, like, she fell through the ceiling tile. and They were like, we have a child right here. Why don't we just use this one? It, I thought it was... Yeah, it was like that and, like multiple uh things of like all right we're gonna shut her up yeah yeah exactly which gave it more horror but it's horrible and also goes to show that like the shitty thing is sometimes evil isn't premeditated they do it just because they're like what do we do um so the male chicken shit doctor render is like let's not get crazy now kids do what you're told but then the gyptians show up stabbing and hacking and Ma Costa is like, did you know Billy Costa? And he's like, I was just obeying orders. And then she snaps his neck and he dies. And then she's like, come on, kids, we're rescuing you. And then the children scream, which in my opinion is the understandable reaction. Yeah, a little crazy. <laughs> like, a little crazy. Uh, am I going to go with the woman who just twisted someone's neck until they died? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I could do without it. But whatever. I, I'm, I told you this before, but it's like season eight of Game of Thrones. None of it can hurt me now. Yeah. I mean, like, they're doing a great job with much of yes. the show. Do not get me wrong. <laughs> I've seen what bad looks like. Yes. Lyra is fighting some Tartars on her way out. Things are looking bad. And then Eorik saves the day. It's a very cute exchange. She's like, what took you so long? And he's like, good to see you too, Lyra. Much like Farter Corum last episode oh, yeah. with Lyra, when, she's, when he's like, hello to you too, Lyra, when she just goes a mile a minute. Yeah. That's how old they I all loved treat it. her. It's cute. <laughs> Mrs. Coulter then lands through tile, and then she crouches upon a desk, very much like her monkey, breathing heavily. Great scene. Really good scene. Just really good little stopper. I love that these kind of just pow, pow, pow. They hit well. Some of them are longer than the others. Some of them are shorter than the moments. Others, I just, I really liked it. I think it's a, I think they really did this battle right. I feel like you got the chaos of it all, 
I mean, the next part is Arya running through King's Landing. Oh my God. Just kidding, it's Lyra. But they do, <laughs> like you said, they do nail the chaos of the fighting. Yeah. Things are looking bad for the Egyptians again, but Yorick takes care of more Tartars. Everyone is fighting. The evil doctor says, get the child, kill everyone else. But then Serafina Pakala shows up and kicks some fast ass before witching herself away. So it was the witches. That was the moment from the trailer. It was not specters. Mm. So maybe we won't finish the third book in the next week. We'll see. We'll see. Look at us. Making predictions. Being wrong. Oh, the flower. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I do. I thought it was interesting the language that the doctor used of saying uh, she's the one with value. In regards to Lyra, uh, it's really gross. goes to show you how they look at the children as just objects. This one has value. This one does not. And then you get right afterwards when it's all said and done and Roger leads out the children from Mm -hmm. inside. They're wrapped in red blankets uh, and Coulter is watching from around a corner as this happens. She has tears in her eyes and she watches Lyra and Ma Costa embracing the different children Lyra embraces Bridget McGinn, which I thought was really nice, considering Bridget was Tony Macarios's Lyra, you know? Yeah. Um, in the books. So uh, you watch Coulter with the tears in her eyes, but there you have it. Like, these are the people that were the heroes and actually, like, found value in these children that obviously we know aren't really responsive right now much. They found the value in them. Yeah, and some of them weren't even their children, and they're like, we have to save them anyway. Exactly. And then, of course, as you were talking about doors closing, this is, I think, one of those scenes as Mrs. Coulter leaves. We, yes. it, it's a, a very well done shot of um, her turning around and leaving the moment and then the door shutting behind her as she closes her heart to the ch- those children and to Lyra once more. At the balloon, Lyra tells Ma Costa they were only able to free the children thanks to her son, Billy, who was a fighter. And showed them there was a way out. <laughs> yes. Ma tells her to go finish her mission. Lyra says she must free her father. Roger then gets to meet Lyra's new friends at the balloon. Very cute exchanges all around. I think this is my favorite scene in the episode. He's like, oh, this is York. That was going to look different. <laughs> it's definitely in my top moments, especially just them in the balloon floating away. Very fantastical. I mean, that right there... The armored bear, the pants you're born on your balloon, Lee Scoresby piloting the balloon, Lyra and Roger and Salcilia and Pan sitting there kind of snuggled together. No. Um, it's very classic and it's so not going to last, the happiness. So, yep. Yep. Doesn't last like by the end of the episode. <laughs> yep, absolutely doesn't. Yeah, because Lee, as he, he commands them to get settled up and go, they float, and while everyone's sleeping, Seraphina Pecola appears. Lee Scoresby is ready to retire from his case. He's like, so I had one contract. Seraphina's like, you can't. Lyra needs you. This is about more than money. It's about love. She tells him <laughs> that Lyra is responsible for more than their world's fates. And then, yeah, there's a lot of, like, intimacy. Yeah, um, their faces are far too close for just friends. I'm sorry, I've been just friends with people before, and that was not just friends. 
Oh, Chloe, like, when I was watching this scene, I was like, Chloe's about to, like, have a heart attack. I was. I was literally screaming. I, I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Especially because then they were in the preview. And I was like, oh, my God, it's them again. I'm sorry, but, like, I'm not trying to be an asshole. But Serafina and Lee are quite obviously romantic interests of each other that never get to be romantic interests of each other. Like, they start to open each other back up again. It's very nice. It's a very pleasant feeling. Yeah. Uh, the conversation goes back and forth, and it's pretty similar to what happens in the books. Serafina kind of convinces him he has to go and watch over Lyra. She's basically like, here's your second adoption contract. I need you to sign it. It's forever. It's eternal. It's binding. He says to her, this is not how I expected this conversation to go. She's like, it's not. And he goes, no, I was hoping you would find a way of chucking me some danger money. Instead, you blindsided me with love. He meant love for Lyra, but also it could be multiple things. But yeah. It can be both. And then, of course, it goes on and they go back and forth and she tells him, you're a capable navigator. You'll be fine. And she tells, he says to her, she's responsible for the fate of everything and I'm responsible for her. And Serafina says, the world is in your hands, Mr. Scoresby, and I'm delighted it is. Hmm. It was a very nice scene to get. And I'm not the only one who ships it. I'm just saying they obviously yeah. ship it. It was very intimate. If John Fa and Maggie fucked, then maybe I get to have Lee and Serafina. Okay? I'm just saying. We've had several people, James Schroeder on Twitter, even tweeted and said, oh, yeah, I thought they were a romantic interest. And I was like, yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> Anyways, I digress. It was just very nice. Even Hester kind of like cyber bullies Lee. And she's just like, wow, impressive. They want you on their team. <laughs> yeah. I want him there. Part of the, you know, we're helping yeah. Lyra. Get the fuck off this <laughs> podcast. Uh, this is it. This is the moment. But yeah, I saw this and was like, all right, look. Chloe can die happy now. I feel good. I feel good about it. I feel validated. I got like some hope yeah. in me for the flower now. This may, yeah. Like I know last episode I was like, they're not going to have the flower. But now I'm kind of like, maybe the bitch will get him a flower. Yeah. Us, us two seconds ago. They don't have the other yeah. kind of flower. <laughs> us now. Give me Chloe's, one flower. Chloe's so full. She's filled with happiness. <laughs> I'm filled with love. The Egyptian faction moves out. Blindsided by love. Yeah. You got John Fa, maybe who's fucking Maggie, Costa, discussing the children and where they will go if the families don't want them. And John Fa seems pretty optimistic, though, about the battle. Says, like, he had thought he would be bringing Billy home. And Ma says Billy would have been proud of us. Oh. Sad. Ugh, yeah. Why won't you guys just say if it's a thing or not? Yeah, like you don't if if you if they're dating or if they're like past past lovers. a couple past lovers. I don't know. Like they can at least just tell us. Like obviously, Ma Costa fucked. Well, clearly, there's two things right here. Two childrenses. <sighs> well, the very final scene, Eliana. I just want to preface this that I am just aghast at the cliffhanger that happened in his Dark Materials this week. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. You're hired. Do I get fired? I'm hired? You're hired. <sighs> it's the Cliff Guest Hanger! 
I wasn't sure if if they were going to really do it, and I'm glad that they did. It's a good fantastical element to include. Oh, it was so spooky. Yeah, they've been good at introducing a lot of different horror elements, right, throughout this episode in yes. different ways. This one's kind of fun. They they have all those little clicky noises. It's kind of, I think, become a thing now in horror movies. Maybe it always was. Yeah. I think one of the most famous instances of it is, like, Predator from, mm-hmm. like, you know, those Alien vs. Predator, like, whatever other Predator movies, uh, which is apparently also maybe inspired by the sounds of insects, right? Those clicky noises that they make, which naturally repels people. Yeah, and the way they were flashing in the cracks of the balloon. Yeah. Uh, and the whole time, the the big thing that was so scary is they were barely visible. Yeah. Uh, we didn't get more than two to three seconds of a shot of the cliff ghast. You saw their limbs. You saw kind of their weird, taily, wingy thing. You saw their face very briefly. It just really added to that spooky illusion. Yeah. It was just enough. I thought it was the perfect scene, the perfect cliff ghast hanger for the end of the episode. Yeah. And it, it's a different way of doing their usual cliffhangers of like what's happening to lyra she's in danger instead of us like being like oh lyra's in a new dangerous situation (laughs) where is lyra she fell (laughs) we all know what happened but whatever wow well next time season one episode seven we got some bear fights happening some bear bear naked fights oh my god we have eo for rachnison Yes. We have Father McPhail saying Mrs. Coulter McPhailed. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, Boreal shows his snake side. Lee and Serafina come close to holding hands. McPhail wants Asriel dead. Lyra tells Eofer that Eoric sucks and he rules. And that's pretty much it. That's next week. I'm pretty excited for next week, though. Are you just going to roar the entire time? Yeah, I Okay, I've said it before, and I really, this is so messed up, but I do secretly kind of like Mayo Yorick more. Oh my god. I really do. I think that your Yorick is very special, not just to me, I think to hundreds of listeners, yeah. personally. I know that, um, you know, this person's actually a uh, a real voice actor, real actor. Probably, allegedly yeah sounds probably more like a real bear than mine does but i just allegedly like, i just feel like i really commit to the role <laughs> that's all um, i think you make a fine a fine bear you do a great thank you. you bear bear thank you me bear bear we bear bear dun, together dun, dun. you know they have a chloe in that show I mean, it was meant to be. Well, thank you so much for listening to us this week, you guys. We will be back next week with Season 1, Episode 7. It's not Mortal Kombat. (laughs) So I'm already disappointed. Tell us who your favorite fighter was. Sub-Zero or log (laughs) off, Pullman. Oh, yes, and... Hey, be sure to keep up with us whenever these episodes come out. We also, of course, do a reread of the Song of Ice and Fire books, uh, where we compile character chapters and do one character at a time. Right now, we are still we're still wrapping up John and Dance. One of these days, we're going to be done <laughs> with that. But follow us on social media. You can find us at Girls Gone Canon on Twitter, C A N O N, or if you would like, you can shoot us an email. Maybe we'll read it at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. 
Yeah, and make sure to subscribe to us on our numerous different podcast platforms. We are hosted on Podbean primarily, but you can also find us on iTunes, on Google Play, on Spotify, on Stitcher, on Overcast, and on Acast. And of course, we do have a Patreon. We, uh, this month, put out an episode about House Valerian from the A Song of Ice and Fire series as House of the Dragon has been announced as a prequel show. We wanted to look at one of the other houses that were close to House Targaryen. And this month, for December though, our Patreon episode will be about the lantern slides that are at the end of each of the three main His Dark Materials novels. Yes, so excited for that. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Thanks, guys. Goodbye.